EU Confidential is ready to roll right after this. Today's episode is presented by SQM. Ever thought about where the lithium in your phone battery comes from and how sustainable the supply chain is? At SQM, it's all we think about. Ich bin ein Violiner. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. People of the world, look at Berlin, where a wall came down, a continent came together, and history proved that there is no challenge too great. When US presidents come to Europe, they have a habit of making headlines, sometimes before they've even been elected. Will it be the same on Joe Biden's first visit to the old continent since he was elected president? Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. We'll get into Biden's visit in just a moment with our podcast panel and with Peter Bayer, the German government's transatlantic coordinator. He talks about what we can expect from Biden's visit on everything from China to trade to Nord Stream 2. He also gives us a sense of how relations have changed since Donald Trump left the White House earlier this year. But fear not if you think we're getting to America-focused, to Anglo-Saxon. We'll pay homage to France by hearing about the European Parliament's strange return to Strasbourg after more than a year away due to the coronavirus. And we'll hear about the French government's controversial plans to make La Longue de Molière and Macron central to its presidency of the Council of the EU. But first, let's bring in that podcast panel to set up the big event of coming days, Joe Biden's visit to Europe. So we're about to plunge into a big sequence of summits involving US President Joe Biden as he makes his first visit to Europe, his first foreign trip uh, of any sort since he became president. In fact, although, of course, we know he's a a veteran traveller, a veteran foreign policy hand in various previous lives. And the first of those summits is the G7 in Cornwall. So let's start by talking about that with our chief Brussels correspondent, David Herzenhorn. Hi, David. Hi there. Senior correspondent in Paris, Reem Montaz. Hi, Reem. Hello, all. And our UK reporter, Anna Isaac. Hi, Anna. Hello. And I thought we would start with you because maybe you can just set the scene for us. Tell us where the G7 is taking place. Tell us what the leaders and um, you and Reem and David, who will all be there, uh, just give our listeners a sense of what they can expect. Cornwall is down right in the very southwest toe of the UK. So that comes with all of the the seaside quirks you'd expect with histories of rum and pirates, um, but also a lot of social deprivation. So it's a very interesting spot to hold an international summit in that regard. And where will the leaders be themselves? Where will they be actually holding their summit? Yeah, so this is an interesting quirk of this summit that's going to make it a bit different to to the atmosphere that we've known at others. So the leaders are going to be over in a place called Carbis Bay. That's a good trek away from Falmouth, where a lot of the media will be much of the time, apart from the press conferences. So it's going to be much more segregated than usual. And Carbis Bay is is a very small town. They're not used to this level of action. And they've suddenly got people have got fences through their gardens. So there's a bit of consternation at the whole affair. But it's a very beautiful spot. We'll see a lot of shots of leaders on beaches, people sitting around fires, I think. So that'll be the kind of vibe. So definitely a bit different, this one. 
Okay. Wow. Sounds interesting. And on the political front, this is obviously a big moment for Boris Johnson. What is his government hoping to achieve from this summit? Yeah, so this is a really important time for the UK to be seen as a competent host. We're coming fresh out of Brexit and we're leading, obviously, with COP26 later on this year. We're hosting that up in Scotland. So it's really important that the G7 is seen to set the tone that it puts the UK on a platform where it's seen as being a credible global player, especially with the emphasis that's been placed on global Britain as a, as a sort of post-Brexit brand. But the key strands that I think will be coming out of this are, as expected, during a pandemic, it will be trying to address global health security. So better international collaboration, but also some kind of attempt to deal with the issue of very inequitable distribution of vaccines. And then also sort of a clearer, more identifiable plan to make good on a lot of these net zero agreements that countries have made. Things like phasing out fossil fuel subsidies will be another key part of that. And then, of course, trade. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that sounds like a lot for, for what's not even three days, right? I mean, David, uh, you're a veteran of, of many of these things. What do you think, looking at it, maybe particularly from from the EU side, um, you know, what are they looking to, to get from this? And, and how much are they looking forward to, you know, dealing with Joe Biden after years of, of Donald Trump? Well, there's no question that a big theme of all these meetings beginning at the G7 will be that the transatlantic alliance is back. And the EU very much wants to to showcase that as well. Uh, they're mindful that this is a big, as Anna describes, coming out party, sort of debutante's ball for global Britain. They are hoping that somewhere in this, Biden will send some clear, if subtle, signals to Britain that if it doesn't play nice, for example, with Ireland, if it doesn't live up to its commitments under the various Brexit agreements, that there could be trouble in Washington. That's not just talk. Overall, though, this uh, G7 is really a return in many ways, because last year, partly Trump's fault, partly uh, the cover of the pandemic, uh, Angela Merkel led the Europeans in rejecting an invitation to go to the US. And in fact, there has not been a formal G7 communique since Quebec, because uh, in 2019 at Biarritz in France, President Emmanuel Macron wanted to avoid Trump blowing up the communique, which he tried to do after leaving Quebec. He'd signed on, then flew off and in the air repudiated an agreement he had just signed on to. Everybody else was like, yeah, it doesn't work that way. You can't just take it back. So having that document, as bureaucratic as it sounds, is very important in documenting both what they hope to accomplish, what kind of momentum they want to bring to the G20, which is often what the G7 is all about, and also what wasn't discussed. But uh, very much, uh, I think the EU, Brussels, from the briefings we're hearing, looking forward to being in a setting where everybody is mostly aligned, or at least sees the need for global cooperation among the world's big democratic economies to tackle things like climate change. Okay, and Reem, of course, Emmanuel Macron was in the chair the last time we had an in-person G7 summit in uh, Biarritz a couple of years ago. Uh, you were there, as was David. And I wonder how Emmanuel Macron deals with this particular G7, because the last time he won quite a lot of praise, partly for being a very skillful Trump handler, right? He uh, even brought in the Iranian foreign minister without causing a blow up. And as David mentioned, he didn't... Uh, 
have a communique, so there couldn't be a fight about that. Uh, this time, a different scenario, different US President, Joe Biden, uh, who he doesn't really know. Uh, how do you think he's going to handle this one? So yeah, a few things I remember at the ending press conference uh, in Biarritz, I asked President Macron actually, have you become Donald Trump's whisperer? Bonsoir, Monsieur le Président, Rémi Montaz de Politico. Est-ce que vous avez trouvé la sauce magique avec Trump? And it made him laugh. And so he just explained that it was very important to establish a personal relationship that established a level of trust in which they could actually work and be constructive together. It's an interesting question about how uh, Macron is going to establish a kind of working relationship with President Biden, keeping in mind that President Biden has been doing uh, foreign policy and has been in politics for literally as long as President Macron has been alive. They are not from the same uh, generation. They also have extremely different um, styles. But what is interesting, what I what I am hearing from uh, both sides, really, is that the interpersonal relationship with Biden is going to be less important than it was with Trump, because under Biden, the entire American government is part of the policymaking world. Whereas with Trump, if you had Trump, you could go forward. If you didn't, you were stuck. That's one very major difference. The other thing that's interesting with the dynamic now is that you know, the US is back. Most of the world is very happy with the return of the US into the multilateral system. And France is certainly very happy about that. But they're also not very keen on losing the leadership position that President Macron has claimed over the past three years when Trump basically ceded that on the multilateral level. And what I am hearing from French officials is that, you know, great America is talking up a great game, but we want to see actions. So on, for example, the question of vaccines and COVID, what are they going to deliver? And they even use the word deliver in English just to show you how serious they are. Mm. And what about um, Anna uh, Boris Johnson's relationship with with Joe Biden? How is that shaping up? How how is the UK trying to engage with this uh, new US administration? You know, where where do they have points in common? And David mentioned one of the points of tension, which is uh, particularly the Brexit agreement, how it's being implemented, particularly on the island of Ireland. Yeah, absolutely. So I think at the moment, all roads lead back to Northern Ireland. Um, and we have to understand that in a range of terms. So people were getting very excited potentially about a free trade agreement with the US and UK before Christmas. It's very clear that that has been aggressively deprioritized by the Biden administration, uh, Northern Ireland being just one of the reasons, but it's a very important reason. And it's not just about Boris Johnson's relationships with Biden himself. It's about the wider relationships with everyone from the Irish diaspora that's involved in politics in the US, which is a huge, huge community. So it's very important not to just think that this is a this is a Biden problem. This is a big reputational problem and risk for the UK more broadly. So it needs to try and move forward on Northern Irish issues with Biden before it can really achieve anything else, I think, on a meaningful bilateral level. There are big efforts to try and find a useful position, particularly on China, as far as aligning some of the US's perspective when it comes to WTO reform, along with the EU's perspective and particularly Japan's. So the UK is trying to play a useful role there. But it's really true that until there's progress on Northern Ireland, the Biden administration is very reluctant to engage with the UK on a, on a whole wide range of issues because it just wants to underline that as the top priority the UK has got to get its house in order is something I hear a lot from US officials here. 
Mm. Let's take a quick uh, romp through some of the other summits that uh, will be part of Joe Biden's agenda. So after Cornwall, he will come here to Brussels uh, for a summit, uh, a NATO summit. And that's a big one involving all the leaders and I think defence ministers and foreign ministers as well. And then there's also uh, an EU-US summit and there is also, I believe, an EU-Canada summit, which I guess uh, Joe Biden gets to sit out and have a bit of a rest there before he goes on to Geneva for the final one, which is is uh, with Vladimir Putin. David, I mean, that's a, there's a lot there. Uh, pick a summit and pick what you'll be looking for. You're going to be at all of them, I think. There, there's a whole lot there. And Russia, of course, will be a theme beginning at the G7, where we expect a big uh, discussion on foreign policy. And, and maybe before we move on, let's mention China. Uh, the last time the G7 addressed China, there was one line in their communique. Everybody expects that will be expanded and there'll be much more robust discussion of China. Then, of course, all this build up to what will be the, the one-on-one, mano-a-mano, Biden versus Putin. And there we have seen the EU, but also some NATO allies, you know, sort of looking to influence some of the US positioning there. And they hope uh, that once there is a meeting between Biden and Putin, that perhaps that can then signal some forward motion in the relationship. Obviously, very fraught uh, sanctions on the part of uh, the West have not changed Russia's behavior. So a big question there about whether Biden comes out of Geneva having achieved any kind of a breakthrough with Putin on future discussions, whether that's on uh, non-proliferation and getting back to any kind of arms control. We've seen agreements falling apart. The uh, INF Treaty, uh, Intermediate uh, Range Nuclear Forces Treaty collapse. That was hugely important for Europeans. Uh, So quite a lot uh, there, but unclear. Remember when Trump and Putin met in Helsinki. It was high, high theater. Uh, Putin gave him a soccer ball, which Trump then flung at his wife, Melania. That was widely perceived as Putin having the upper hand and achieving a PR victory. But in fact, when you look back at the substance, and we reported this at the time, Putin came out of there with nothing new, no recognition of Crimea, no great uh, diplomatic achievement, no uh, return of Russia into uh, the G7. Remember, the G7 was the G8 until the invasion and annexation of Crimea. But this will be a much more substantive conversation. We know Biden very, very well schooled in foreign policy, maybe the best prepared U.S. president on foreign policy in modern history. So uh, Putin may, in fact, be facing his most formidable American counterpart in this kind of a discussion. But I do think we'll see some of the classic, you know, manspreading and mansplaining and gesturing to show who's the tougher of the of the two. But when they get down to brass tacks, it'll be really interesting to see if they can come out with some sort of agreement on how to renew the conversation between Moscow and the West. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll be following all of it. So if you are... um at a loose end, or perhaps you're, you know, keeping one eye on the Euro 2020 football championships, which will be uh, starting also this weekend. So, you know, keep one eye on that and uh, have another on politico.eu. We're going to have playbooks. We will have live blogs of uh, the NATO summit and the EU US summit. We will be all over the Putin Biden summit as well. David will be in Geneva there. So follow uh, David and Reem and Anna on Twitter. 
and keep an eye on Politico.eu for all the coverage as you also watch Euro 2020 for a bit of light relief. I don't know actually what will provide more light relief. Let's see. Depends a lot on how Scotland play. We'll do our best to bring some laughs at least from behind the scenes. There's always some. I'm wondering if Boris Johnson is going to hop into the sea just like he did in Biarritz or, you know, if he's going to have some sort of surprise guest the way Macron had Zarif come in. Who knows? Yeah, exactly. Anna, do you think? Do you reckon he's got any surprises up his sleeve? Uh, I think I think anything that might involve rum drinking could get a bit frisky. So you know, I'm op- I'm optimistic for some some out there events. Perhaps someone's going to have a row over pasties. That's always a winner. Oh wow, yeah, Cornish pasties, uh, a delicacy. Uh- some people would say anyway. Okay, let's leave it there. <laughs> Reem, uh, Anna and David, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, as I was saying earlier in the podcast, we do not want to seem too Anglo-Saxon, as they say in uh, French. Never quite understood whether we Scots are part of the Anglo-Saxons, as the French see them, but it seems to be a kind of catch-all term for for Brits and Americans who we're talking about a fair bit this week. So um, we wanted to redress the balance a bit, and we are joined by Maya Delabaume, our Parliament reporter. Hi, Maya. Hi, Andrew. Uh, Maya is actually joining us from the Council of Europe in Strasbourg uh, right now. And she's been in Strasbourg this week because the European Parliament returned there. That's its official home, of course, after a hiatus of more than 15 months. And this was a big event and also an event, Maya, of some political significance. But start by just painting a picture for us of what a normal Strasbourg week is like. You know, the Parliament decamps at least uh, normally once a month down to Strasbourg for these big plenary sessions. You've been covering them for years. What's a normal Strasbourg week like, a pre-pandemic Strasbourg week? What's the atmosphere? How does it all kind of unfold? Mm. I mean, the plenary week is generally uh, the big moment for the European Parliament. It's when, you know, the 705 MEPs all gather in Strasbourg to vote primarily. And once you're there, it's a very interesting place because it's, you know, different nationalities all running around in the corridors with their assistants. It's a very exciting moment where everybody is rushing to go to vote. And then they're going to, uh, after the vote, to the bar and they discuss amendments with their colleagues. And, and there are many, many countless group meetings happening. And they, they, um, they have, you know, some time to go to restaurants to have a little choucroute uh, on the side with uh, people they don't generally see in, in Brussels. So how did things play out, Maya, this week? I mean, how much did it feel like a normal session back in Strasbourg? And, and what was different about it? Because the pandemic is obviously still ongoing. It it was not really a normal session in the sense that there were fewer people there. Uh, You know, MEPs were allowed to come only with one assistant. The political groups had um, were allowed to take only 20%, I think, of their staff. Plus, there were no lobbyists, no people who generally gravitate around the parliament were not there. So it felt very empty, I would say. There was not this usual usual frenzy uh, of the session that, you know, I see when I go there. It was, it was calm. It was, you know, no people really rushing in the corridors. But it still had a feel of Strasbourg in the sense that there were still people you could talk to as a journalist. Uh, you could go at the hemicycle and, and stop some MEPs and talk to them. I think at, at least 50% of them were there. But the, also the usual conviviality of Strasbourg was not there because, you know, there was a curfew in France. So 
most restaurants were empty or just, you know, closed at 9 p.m. because the curfew was at 9. So it wasn't so convivial and cheery as in general when, when I go there. We were all stuck in our rooms and our bedroom, hotel rooms and had to order choucroute online or <laughs> whatever. And I think it was less, less fun, I would say. I get, can you get uh, choucroute on uh, Uber Eats? <laughs> Is that that a separate category? Need to look into that. But let's move to another French-themed story, if you like, a piece that you wrote about um, how France is planning to use its upcoming presidency of the Council of the EU. Uh, That starts in in January of uh, next year. It's about six months away, but already plans are in full swing. And one of the things you've picked up is that France very much wants to use this opportunity also to reassert French as a language that should be used within the European Union, should be used within meetings. Uh, Give us a a very brief kind of outline of the plan of how the French government wants to promote French as a language, as part of its presidency. And also give us a flavour of of the reaction, because I think this is not uncontroversial. What they decided this year is to have a presidency which also will be used to revive and and boost the visibility of the French language because we know that the French language has declined because of the use of English, which is much more widespread. And But what the French want to do is to have basically all of the big uh, meetings during the French presidency all in French. So the big difference here is that it's all meetings. The French generally speak in French when they conduct meetings of the Corps for instance. The French ambassador always speaks in French. But I think what makes it slightly different for the French presidency is that every single meeting will be in French. And this is also a, a strategy for the French to show that they want to respect the rules because the rules say that you can speak French because it is an official language and it is one of the spoken languages of the council and it is also one of the official languages of the commission. And so what the French told me is we want to respect the rules. Right. And there's obviously a French, there's a Brexit component here, right? The argument that the French have been making certainly since Brexit is why should we all still be talking English? It's, a, it's an argument we've, we've looked into before a bit on the podcast with this whole idea of Euro-English or globish, you know, and France often says, you know, we should be thinking much more about multilingualism. And of course, then you will get some other people saying, well, what you actually mean is more people talking French. So how has this gone down with, with some diplomats who are, who are not so used to speaking in French and, and other people who, who may be affected by this? I mean, it goes down well with uh, the traditional allies of the French and all of those who speak French. And I know in many Southern European countries, there are always a lot of Francophones and a lot of people, you know, like the Portuguese, for instance, or Italians who are happy to speak in French. The problem is more for a young generation, maybe of Eastern Europeans who have never learned French. And when you look at the EU right now, there are a lot of young people too. There's a young generation also of ambassadors, of spokespeople. And they think it's a little bit restrictive maybe to have only council meetings in French. They don't see why they would have to follow uh, a language, you know, they don't speak. So yes, some people I think were a little nervous about this. Yeah. And we should say that I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, right? As someone who who studied interpreting and translating a long time ago, and we should give a shout out to those people who do a lot of hard work behind the scenes. In some cases, there would be interpreting and translating, right? But in some of these more, these smaller meetings, more technical meetings, working group meetings, 
the options are more limited, right, in terms of people um, having the options to get all the interpreting and translating that they might like. Yeah, it, it depends a lot on the meetings. The big ones will be will have interpretation, mm. but you know, as you said, exactly some preparatory mm. meetings, all the meetings that prepare the co-repair, which are the big ambassadorial meetings, will not necessarily be translated in all of the languages yeah. of the EU. Okay, well, we'll certainly keep track of this. And perhaps when the French presidency starts, we can even do a little portion. I won't commit to how much, but part of the podcast in French, just to show uh, how much uh, we respect and pay homage to the French language. Uh, but for now, Maya, thanks very much. Merci à toi, Andrew. Merci à toi aussi. Coming up in less than one minute, Matt Karnichnik in conversation with Germany's transatlantic coordinator, Peter Beyer. A message from SQM. SQM is a global company that is one of the world's largest producers of lithium, holding around a 20% share of the market. We extract lithium from brine below the salt flats in the Atacama Desert in Chile, a core component of batteries used in the manufacture of electric vehicles. We prioritize circularity and are committed to being carbon neutral in our lithium production by 2030. Already 95.8% of the energy we use in the process is solar generated and plans to scale our business to support decarbonization efforts in the EU reflect our commitment to sustainability. Now, earlier this week, our very own Matt Karnichnik in Berlin caught up with Peter Bayer. He's a member of the German Federal Parliament, the Bundestag, from Angela Merkel's Christian Democratic Union. And in 2018, he was appointed transatlantic coordinator for the German government. You know, you had a pretty eventful relationship with the Trump administration. I'm just curious, looking back, you know, what you think the biggest difference is between the first several months of the Biden administration and what you experienced under Trump. I believe you came in a couple of years into the Trump administration, into your role as the transatlantic coordinator. Yeah, actually, it was um, April 11th, 2018. So, of course, there are differences. It was difficult at times because we think that uh, Trump and his administration that uh, from time to time not under, uh, not to differentiate between friends and foes. So that was uh, really a challenging time. Not everything was bad. I mean, we had a lot of communication, but in hindsight, of course, it seemed like we were spending a lot of time extinguishing fires. It was not very, not very con- constructive from our, our perspective. So completely different kind of of communication, of interacting between closest uh, with closest uh, allies. So that was really something that has at least the expectations with the new Biden administrations. They were very high. And indeed, the communication, I wouldn't say it has intensified, but it has improved as regards with treating each other with more respect. That at least is my feeling. But if you look at the overall relationship as well, the kind of U.S.-German relationship, at least from the German perspective, talking about the general public now, views of, of the United States really kind of deteriorated substantially during that time. Coming back to today, I mean, do you think that things are just snapping back now? Because there seems to be a lot of, you know, at least atmospherically enthusiasm for Biden and what he's doing. He seems to be telling Europe what it wants to hear, at least publicly, 
on a lot of fronts. I think the Trump years might have facilitated this America critical position, but still, I think a vast majority of Germans really know and understand that culturally, historically, and especially after World War II, that we owe a lot to America. We wouldn't be here without the, the, the support of the American friends. So yes, the Trump, Trump years were difficult for many Germans because they identified America as a whole, the whole nation, the citizen, with the current occupant of the Oval Office that would be President Donald Trump back then. But you know what, what you mentioned in the beginning of your question was, will, will there be something like just a, an automatic snapback to the normal, the status quo ante before Trump? No, it will not. And you know what? Quite frankly, I think it would not be such a good idea just to turn back the wheel to uh, pre-Donald Trump. I mean, if that would be the goal of Germans, of uh, the German government, it would be a wrong goal because many things have happened. The challenges lie you know, ahead of us. We have to, as I always say, we have to forge the new West. Not geographically only, the old geographic West, Canada, United States, Europe, but with the like-minded states, which I think we should interact as well. If I look at Biden's approach to China, it's actually pretty similar to Trump's. And it, it seems here, though, that, that it's Europe that is kind of maybe slowly coming around to see China as a you know, more fundamental threat to Western values and, and uh, the kind of Western way of life. Is that partly just because of the tone Biden has has brought with him? Because in terms of the policies, it, it does look pretty familiar. Yeah, well, the tone is important. We should not underestimate the tone. And it's, you know, the, the difference, I think, to the t- Trump times is not, I mean, back then we, we thought that Donald Trump was trying to dictate us, you have to decouple. He, there was no respect. Decouple from China. De- decoupling from China, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There was not like a, a willingness of uh, respecting that Europe is, might have different interests. And that was not in the calculation of Donald Trump. Yes, the Europeans are complex. And yes, we are complicated. And yes, also, we, we're not unanimous on, on many issues. That's why there is still not a joint EU-China uh, policy strategy. That is difficult. But that is a fact, I think, uh, the new U.S. president and also Secretary of State Tony Blinken, they understand better the complexities and the interests of the Europeans. That gives a different, I think, a better starting point to define a joint, a common, a transatlantic U.S.-EU-China approach So I think there's a lot of potential where we could uh, really um, stick our heads together and we we should do that. You know, all that talking about these things, all these nice position papers, all the debates in the the think tank community and academia, all the good speeches by the U.S. president, by the secretary of state, by, you know, folks over here. You know, now when push comes to shove, now I want to see concrete steps. So the expectations with regard to Joe Biden's Europe trip, uh, are quite high. Do you think we're going to see a common position between the U.S. and Europe on China? 
come out of this Biden visit? I mean, this would be, as you say, the perfect time to bring everybody together and, and get on the same page. What I what I expect is that, yes, it will be in the portfolio of the topics that they would talk about at the G7, at the US-EU summit. Also, when, when Joe Biden participates at the NATO summit, China will be on the table. But I think we should not raise the expectations too high to a point where we think that there will be a written communique or even an agreement on that's our transatlantic China politics. I don't think that we can expect that, but it will be more concrete talks about that. The other kind of big agenda item on Biden's uh, calendar when he comes to Europe is going to be Russia and uh, the kind of stance of the West, NATO and, and, and Europe towards Russia. There's obviously been a lot of conversation about Germany's role there over the past few years with Nord Stream 2 and uh, its decision to uh, not stand in the way of that project, let's say. The Biden administration has now said that it would not impose sanctions as uh, some people feared on companies involved in that project, which many see as basically giving a green light for its completion. It's almost finished. Do you think that the Nord Stream 2 issue kind of goes away now as a problem in the transatlantic relationship, or do you expect it to kind of continue to come up now and again and cause trouble? Yeah, nobody should be mistaken. Nord Stream 2 is there, and it will be there if it is completed which I expect now since, I mean, de-, de facto, it is almost completed anyway with a waiver. It's only a waiver of the sanctions, I think, uh, if I recall correctly, until the end of this year. Uh, that opens a window for talks across the Atlantic. That was my goal when I was advocating for a moratorium to build Nord Stream 2. You look, I, I, I don't think Nord Stream 2 is the smartest idea to do. But again, I mean, pragmatically, it's almost done. But we should be very critical about and, and skeptical about the fact that if, if there will be a flow of gas through it, it should be really conditioned. And so I don't know what solution there can be between the United States government and the German government. But the waiver of the sanctions took a lot of this tension, the over, overheat and tension out of the Nord Stream 2 topic, which to me was absurdly burdened with ideology over the past four years. You know, it has climbed up the ladder to top three priorities in our transatlantic relations. Let not a pipeline stand in our way for in the transatlantic relations. My advice, if I may, would be not focus only on Nord Stream 2, make energy security politics one element of a broader transatlantic Russia politics. But why do you think uh, Biden agreed to back down in the end and to waive the sanctions? Was there some kind of deal behind the scenes that uh, we don't know about between uh, Germany and Washington where the, the, the Germans agreed to do something uh, in return for this? Yeah, I, 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 well, we all know that domestically, uh, President Biden is under enormous pressure when it comes to Nord Stream 2. And I think Congress, both sides of the political aisle, reps as, as well as Dems in the House and the Senate, 
don't really like that. But still, it's uh, quite brave of him from my point of view. I think there's some expectation from the U.S. side. Uh, now, what brings Germany to the table? Um, I don't know what that could be. Maybe there's already something, but I, I, I just don't know that. Of course, I hear rumors coming out of the uh, transatlantic universe. We're happy to hear the speculation, Peter. Yeah, <laughs> there can be so many things. Right? <laughs> uh, you know, be creative. <laughs> but uh, no, but seriously, um, I think uh, the Biden administration, I mean, now it sounds a little bit naive, but also wanted to, to, to be nice, to sh show some signals across the Atlantic to us that, yes, we ought to understand. We also want to be an enabler for their that the new start in the transatlantic relations really can happen. But now you guys from Germany also have to deliver. But I also have to add, there are you know, high-ranking people here in the government and in the parliament who, who see it that way, said, well, we see these sanctions were illegal anyway, so doing away with them is just you know, creating a legal, um, legal situation. So why should we say thank you and bring something to the table from our side? I don't think uh, this kind of thinking will bring us anywhere. And it will definitely not br bring us to a new transatlantic relation. Uh, Peter, it looks like we've, we've run out of time. I just had one final quick question. You've got an election in Germany coming up in September, as we know. Assuming that the CDU uh, remains the dominant party, What do you expect to change, if anything, in the transatlantic relationship after uh, Merkel steps away from uh, the chancellery? Yeah, I don't think first that everything needs to be invented anew. There's a lot of things that, that can continue, but we need new ideas, fresh ideas. Top of the agenda is doing away with the barriers to trade, modernization of NATO, and also I would like to see uh, in the technological world and in the, in the uh, sciences and renewable energies world, I think uh, there's a lot of know-how on both sides of the Atlantic. We should and we actually can join forces in these projects and make it very concrete and build on these values and interests that we have, but make it concrete and let politics out and the uh, sciences and the in businesses do their stuff without overregulation. Great. Peter, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Matt. Thanks to Matt for bringing us that conversation. And while we're talking about Germany, a quick update on the state election in Saxony-Anhalt, which we covered in last week's episode. It turned out to be a big win for the Christian Democrats, and that was also a boost for the party's relatively new leader, Armin Laschet. The CDU won roughly 37% of the vote. The far-right alternative for Germany, the AFD, ended up losing voters, although it still landed in second place with about 20% of the vote. So a strong showing for the CDU and Armin Laschet, much better than the polls had predicted. But there's a long way to go between now and Germany's big election, the general election in September that will pick a successor to Angela Merkel. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe for free or follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. We also really appreciate your ratings and reviews, especially good ones. And you can always email us directly with feedback or ideas for guests or topics. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you. 
for listening.